This morning we have arrived into Judges chapter 3. Just to kind of recap what we've been doing the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at basically the historical background of the book of Judges, and we also introduced the two cycles that we're going to be see happening throughout the book. One was the cycle that the Israelites follow, and then one is the cycle that God himself follows. So let me review those with you again real quick. The cycle that you're going to see in the life of Israel is apostasy or sin, oppression. God is going to bring in an outside nation to subdue the Israelites. Then the Israelites will, number three, cry out to God. And then number four, God will deliver them with a judge. Now the cycle that God uses is somewhat similar. Number one, he responds in anger to the unfaithfulness of Israel. He brings punishment on the Israelites in the form of that opposing nation. He relents of his anger or he changes his mind, number three. And then number four, he provides deliverance in the form of a judge. And in chapter three this morning, we're going to be looking at the first three judges that we come across in the book. But before we do that, I want to actually go back to chapter two and read verses 16 through 19 to you to kind of help you remember the framework for how the book operates. Chapter 2, verse 16 says, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. That's not a typo, by the way. That's in the Bible. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So I use verses 16 through 19 of chapter 2 to kind of remind you of the framework of what you're going to be seeing as we spend the summer working our way through this book. This morning, we're going to look at the judgeship of Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar. Those are the three judges that we're introduced to here in chapter 3. And in each story, you're going to see some of the same elements. So this morning, as we work our way through the text, we're going to focus primarily on these three points. Number one, the Israelites are the problem. Number two, the judge is the instrument. And then number three, God is the hero. The Israelites are the problem. The judge is the instrument, but God is the hero. Number one, the Israelites are the problem. In each episode that we read about here in chapter 3, 7 through 21, you're going to see all of these same elements popping up. Now, instead of us reading the whole passage this morning, we're just going to kind of work our way through the various verses as we go. But if you'll look, it is taught explicitly in verse 7 and in verse 12, and it's implied in verse 19 that the real problem that's going on here is Israel. Look at verse 7. And the people of Israel did 
What was evil in the sight of the Lord? They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Verse 12, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. We don't need to belabor the point, but Israel had turned away from Yahweh. They began worshiping these foreign gods, and the Israelites could basically be diagnosed with what I would call spiritual amnesia. They had forgotten all of the ways that God had provided for his people. We picked up on this last week in chapter 2, verse 10, when the author of Judges tells us, a whole generation had neglected to remember who God was or the works that he had done for his people. And when our hearts are pulled away from God, it's not surprising that we would forget the ways that he has worked in our lives. St. Augustine, one of the early church fathers in the history of the church, served as a bishop in North Africa. He has quite an incredible story of conversion to faith in Christ. But one day he was reading one of the ancient philosophers by the name of Cicero. And Cicero had pointed out in one of his writings that even though all people desire, they set out to be happy, most people end up miserable. This is what Cicero wrote. Augustine is reading this, and he's very uncomfortable with what he reads. So he begins to set out to discover why is it that even though all human beings desire, want to be, set out to be happy, why is it that they ultimately end up miserable? So Augustine comes up with this concept that is well known in his theology, known as disordered loves. That is, that people have their priorities out of whack. They focus on inferior things, and they neglect the superior things. So as human beings, if our lives are prone to misery and disappointment, many times it's because we have elevated inferior things to the supreme thing in life, or we love the supreme things inferiorly. So God has actually designed every human being in his image. And as John Piper eloquently says in all 30 of his books, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. The, the struggle that Augustine had is the same struggle that the Israelites are dealing with here in the book of Judges. Disordered loves. They are loving the gods of the Canaanites superiorly and loving Yahweh inferiorly. And this leads to all sorts of disasters. They began loving the gods of all of these nations rather than faithfully serving Yahweh. And that's the problem with idolatry, which is what we're addressing in this book. Idolatry deceives us into thinking that these inferior things that God has given us are actually supreme. Think about it for a moment. All of the things that you love in your life, the relationships that you have with your spouse, your children, your boyfriends and girlfriends, your fiancés, those are good things. When you make them the ultimate thing, it becomes a problem. Whether that's your job, your hobby, your bank account, your health, 
all of these things that God gives us, none of them are supposed to be loved supremely. That is only for God himself. All of those other things are fragile. What happens when that relationship that you have made the pinnacle of your life comes to an end, whether by death or breakup or any other thing? What will happen? If it's the ultimate thing in your life, it will destroy you. What happens if your bank account is the ultimate thing in your life? What happens when the stock market crashes? It will destroy you because you've made it the ultimate thing in your life. What happens when you allow your health to be your standard of happiness when that doctor gives you that report, which is coming, by the way, for all of us, that you only have six months to live or this is going to radically change the way you live your life. If your life is based on good health, you'll be disappointed. So all of these different things in life that God has given us as blessings, if they become the supreme things in our lives, will be incredibly fragile. But if we make sure that God is the number one priority in our life, if he is the one that we look to, to, all-knowing, all-present, all-gracious, all-powerful, all-knowing, he is the only constant and steady presence that any of us can rely on in our lives to bring us ultimate fulfillment and happiness. Augustine realized this, and so the famous quote that he is so well known for is, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in him. Talking about God. This is what's happening in the story of the judges. They are trying to find supreme worth and happiness in everything except God himself. First, it's the king of Mesopotamia, Kushan, Rishathaim. That is hard to say. I practiced it all week, and I nailed it, by the way. His name means double wickedness. And we're told in verse 8 that the Israelites served this foreign king for a total of eight years. This punishment, though, was a result of what? Their disobedience. Verse 8 also tells us that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. The text is clear. God sold them into the hands of Cushan, Rishathaim, because they were disobedient to God. They had abandoned him for all of the practices of the Canaanite culture and the Canaanite gods. Now look in the story of Ehud. We have the same type of structure. This time the foreign enemy was Eglon, the king of Moab. And we're told in verse 12 that the Lord strengthened Eglon. God is the one using these foreign enemies to discipline his people. Look at verse 13, it gives us more detail. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. This is describing Eglon as he goes in and he defeats all of these surrounding nations. The city of Palms is Jericho. And we're told in verse 14 that Israel served Eglon for a total of 18 years. Now, don't read this as a good thing. Israel is not serving Eglon and Kushan Rishathaim because they are being obedient to God, 
but rather because they're being disobedient to God. This is a total of 26 years that the Israelites are in bondage to these foreign nations. Why are they in bondage to them? Because they have been disobedient to the Lord. So the Israelites are the problem in this passage. But number two, the judge is the instrument. God brings up these judges to deliver his people from these oppressed nations. Look at verse 9. We're told about this in two separate places, that the people of Israel cried out to God. Verse 9 says, But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel, who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. This is the same Othniel that we read about in Judges chapter 1, who delivered Israel and conquered the land of Debir. He's the first judge that we read about in this book. He's also, by the way, the best judge. So you can circle his name and write the ideal judge, the prototypical judge. Every judge from this point forward continues to spiral deeper and deeper into wickedness. Othniel is the ideal judge that we read about. Now, here's what's interesting about Othniel. We're not told a lot. It's a very short passage of Scripture. In many ways, it's an uneventful term as judge. Barry Webb, in his commentary, describing the Othniel account, says this. The account of Othniel's career here is remarkably brief and surprisingly lacking in color. There is no detailed description of either scene or character or action. Where did the battle take place? What size was the enemy army? What Israelite tribes took part? What tactics were used? How did God intervene to turn the tide against the enemy? And so on. We simply don't know because nothing is said about any of the things that would make this a vivid narrative. In our world today, it sometimes feels like consistent, steady, uneventful leadership is somehow a character flaw, isn't it? Many times we're looking for the controversial, loud, arrogant, that's what attracts people, that's what draws people. What do we see out of Othniel's life? Absolutely nothing. He's just a boring, faithful judge. And yet the book of Judges basically tells us, without telling us, he is the best judge. Steady, consistent, not flashy. And yet God, in his divine providence, puts him at the top of the list in the book of Judges to remind us that it's not about the one who's charming and boisterous and loud and perhaps even controversial. It's just the faithful servant of God. He is the one that delivers his people, gives land, gives rest to the land, the text tells us, for 40 years. And that's it for Othniel. We never hear about him again, but I would caution you this morning not to neglect what you read about from this man. Faithful, consistent judge who delivered the Israelites back into the good graces of God. Now, the most exciting, the most graphic story from chapter 3 
actually comes from the second judge, Ehud. We have quite the expanded narrative. And you'll be awake by the end of this story if you're not already. It begins in verse 15. We see the same pattern. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. Even with that, we're already given more information about Ehud than we were given about Othniel. The most unique description is that he was a left-handed man. Now, you can read all sorts of commentaries. You can come to all sorts of conclusions about what the author is trying to get at with this left-handedness. Some people think it's just an idiomatic expression. Others think in the ancient world, having a strong right hand was the sign of a great military warrior. So some think this is just a reference to the fact that Ehud is not flashy as a military leader. That's perhaps why it says that he's left-handed, but I wouldn't stress over that description. Generally, we have details in the Old Testament where the authors put in what appear to be these random descriptions, and we can scratch our head trying to figure out what it's about. But this story is not really about Ehud being left-handed, so just don't worry about that. In the story of Ehud, there is actually a lot of comical detail. Now, you have to imagine, in the ancient world, the Israelites are passing down these stories. It's oral tradition. The family, the local synagogue gathers in the room, and they open up the book of Judges, and they begin to read the story of Ehud. And this story is actually meant to be understood quite comically. There's a lot of funny aspects to it. For example, look at verse 17. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. Now, that alone might not be that funny, except when you dig a little bit deeper and you find out what Eglon's name means. It means heifer. It means cow. It means bull. Not only is Eglon actually physically fat, his name means you're fat. This is how the story begins. Eglon basically means he's a cow. Now, I would not suggest that you begin using Eglon as some sort of derogatory term for your friends or family members, but that is how the author of Judges uses it in this passage. Ehud actually capitalizes on Eglon's fatness in this story. So he takes a double-edged sword As a left-handed man, he places it under his right thigh so that he could have easy access to it. And in verse 19, he tells Eglon, I have a secret message for you. Then in verse 20, he goes on to tell him that I have a message from God for you. At this point, Eglon is excited. Perhaps he's expecting some profound sage to come and say a blessing over him in the name of Yahweh. So he clears out all of his attendants, all of his security guards, all of his servants. And then he stands up and Ehud stabs him in the gut. And he's so fat that essentially the sword is swallowed up by the fat of Ehud. Excuse me, of Eglon. Then Ehud escapes. He locks the chamber up in the roof, and he escapes. Now, here's the really funny part of the story. 
The guards and the attendants and all the servants, they're standing outside. They've been asked to leave. The door is locked. And the text actually tells us they're basically a little uneasy. They don't really know what they're supposed to do at this point. He seems to have been in there a very long time, but nobody wants to walk in on a man using the bathroom. That's what the text implies here. I don't know if any of you, and nor do I want to know, if you've ever walked in on somebody using the restroom before, but it's not a pretty sight. And that's what the text wants you to see. That's why these servants, these guards, are so uneasy. Look at verse 25. It says, And they waited till they were embarrassed. What were they embarrassed about? They didn't know what to do. But my guess is, even though the text doesn't clearly tell us this, they began to smell something coming from Eglon's chamber. And when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them. And there lay their Lord, dead on the floor, basically surrounded by his dung. That's how this story comes to its conclusion. This great king of Moab, who had enslaved the Israelites for 18 years, was lying dead in his own poop. You can laugh. It's okay. God's word is sometimes meant to be amusing. And in this particular story, clearly, if you're into bathroom humor, this is your favorite story in the Bible. Ehud delivers his people from bondage through a very curious way of going about doing it. Then, in verse 31, we're given one verse on this judge known as Shamgar. And all we're told is that he killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. Now, I want to show you a picture of an ox goad. An ox goad is a pointed stick that was used to prod animals normally when they were pulling a plow. So the author of Judges tells us that Shamgar took this ox goad and he slaughters 600 Philistines. We're not told how he did it. We're not told you know, how it's even possible that he could do so. But the text clearly tells us that he conquered 600 of the Philistines and he saved Israel. So we have Othniel the prototypical, uneventful, consistent, steady judge who saved Israel. Then we have the quite racy story of Ehud and Eglon, the king of Moab. Then we're given one verse on Shamgar, who slaughtered 600 Philistines with this little instrument known as an ox goad. All three of these judges are important their stories are fascinating, but do not miss, ultimately, when we walk away from these stories, what we are to take with us. That is that God is the hero of the book of Judges. Part of the reason that we don't have any special details in the story of Othniel is because the story is not about Othniel. It's about the faithfulness of God. Look at verse 10. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hands. This is a story about God working through the judge to accomplish his purposes. God delivered his people from their enemies. And when you read in verse 9 that the people cried out, almost no commentary 
believes that when the people cry out in the book of Judges, that they're ever repentant for their sin. Almost no commentary says that. They almost all agree that this cry out that we read about throughout the book of Judges is not because the people are remorseful for their sin. It's because they're crying out in pain and agony, and they just want relief from all of these foreign nations. Don't miss this. God doesn't remain faithful to his people in the book of Judges because they do repent and stay faithful to him. Because the Israelites don't repent and they don't stay faithful throughout the entire book. So why does God remain faithful to Israel in spite of their lack of repentance and their lack of faithfulness? The same reason he stays faithful to us when we are not faithful to him. Because the God of Israel, Jesus in the New Testament, is a faithful God who must keep his promises. And all the way back in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 15, when the covenant is made with Abraham and then passed down to Isaac, passed down to Jacob, passed down to Joseph, passed down to Moses, passed down to Joshua. And now in Judges, even though there's no one leader, that covenant still is valid. And God is faithful to his people. Well, what about Ehud? Surely the narrator here wants us to walk away with this incredible impression of Ehud. I mean, the whole narrative, it's so much longer than the story we have of Othniel and Shamgar. Surely we're to walk away impressed with Ehud. No. Look at verses 28 to 30. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. It's about God. Not about Ehud. What about Shamgar? Any man who can slay 600 Philistines with an ox goad surely is the goat. When I say goat, I mean the greatest of all time. Everybody knows that expression now, right? The goat. I could name some other people that are the goat, but I won't. We're to infer from this one verse, not that Shamgar is this incredible warrior, but that only God can give someone a small tool like an ox goad and slay 600 Philistines. This is not about Shamgar. This is about the powerfulness of the God that we serve. And every time a God like Yahweh, the one true God, delivers the people, we're told in Judges 3 that rest comes on the land. With Othniel, it's 40 years of rest. With Ehud, it's 80 years of rest. And with Shamgar, we're basically communicated that it extends the amount of rest that Ehud initially brought in. So the Israelites are given peace and rest every time God stepped in and delivered them. But notice 
that this peace is always temporary. It doesn't stay. And as we navigate our way through the book this summer, you're going to see this. Peace happens, the Israelites sin, and unrest occurs again. Look at how one commentator mentions it. Othniel, for all his excellent qualities and all that God accomplished through him, was a fallen man in a fallen world and therefore could not bring permanent rest to God's people. In describing similarities between Ehud and Jesus, he says this, both were deliverers raised up by God. Both were unlikely deliverers with unpromising origins and an appearance of weakness rather than strength. Both faced the enemy alone and overcame him. Both were later revealed as victorious and summoned others to share in their victory. Both overcame the world in the instance of Ehud, Moab, in the instance of Jesus over Rome. And they achieved rest for God's people. And in Shamgar, we catch a glimpse of unbroken rest. He prevented the 80-year rest that Ehud had won for Israel from being disturbed by a Philistine incursion. And like all the other deliverances won by Israel's judges, that is a signpost, the commentator says, on the way to something greater. A rest in rich, there will be no need for emergency action to keep the enemy at bay. Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar cannot provide ultimate rest for God's people. They have to await another, Jesus Christ, who comes in the New Testament. And the rest that he provides is only accomplished through his death. Jesus did all of the work that was necessary for anyone to achieve ultimate rest. He completely fulfilled the law by his righteousness. And all of those who repent of their sin and believe in the gospel can enter eternal rest. The Israelites, as they're gathered in the synagogues, reading this story about Othniel and Ehud and Shamgar, they didn't have the privilege of living on this side of Jesus' life and his death and in his resurrection. So when the Israelites gathered to read the stories about these judges, they were faithfully anticipating the one who would come, the Messiah, and provide that ultimate rest. Brothers and sisters, we don't have to anticipate it. He has come. He conquered death. He defeated sin. He rose from the dead. Romans 8.1 tells us, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus bore the guilt and the wrath and the punishment and the condemnation for our sin in our place on the cross. There will be no rest without Jesus Christ. As we go back Tuesday into the workplace, into our neighborhoods with those that we love and care for, we cannot overemphasize this enough that all of the false idols in our culture that people look to to give rest, family, finances, a house, 
a car, a vacation home, a retirement account. None of those things give people rest. It only comes through Jesus Christ himself. And if you're not in Christ today, you're to walk away from these stories realizing you will never have rest apart from Jesus Christ. Idolatry will lead you to believe that all of those things that I previously mentioned will give you rest, but they don't. They leave you unfulfilled. They leave you eternally separated from God because Jesus Christ, the ultimate judge, is the only one who can give you rest, not for 40 years, not for eight years, but for all of eternity. That is the message of the gospel. And we read it here in Judges chapter 3. Let's pray. Oh God, if there is anyone in this room today who is searching, maybe they are exhausted and they are looking for rest and peace in all the wrong places. I pray your spirit would convict them of their sin, that they would repent and believe in the good news of the gospel. It is the only way that they can be reconciled to God and enter into eternal peace with you. And for the rest of us in this room that are already in Christ, we need that reminder, we need that nudge through the reading of your word that we will not find peace in the things of this world. We will only find it in Christ Jesus. Thank you for your love for us. How deep the Father's love is for us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.